0: Today's scripture reading is found in 1 Samuel, chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible to follow along, and the text reading will also be on the screen behind me. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashtod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the Ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the Ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the Ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the city went up to heaven, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Praise be to God. Thank you. Now you can be seated. Well, again, if you're new, I want to welcome you to uh, the Parks Church and our gathering uh, this is what we do here at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and we are making our way, uh, obviously, here through First uh, and Second Samuel, and we'll cover all of, of chapter 5, so keep uh, your copy of God's Word uh, close as we make our way. And If you've heard me teach, or been around my teaching, um, I, I like to start my talks with definitions. Uh, definitions like getting, getting the terms defined so then we can dig into the text so that we, ha- we have a shared common uh, footing and, and, and definition of, of what we're talking about. Um, however, in this case with First Samuel chapter 5, um, in any time you're trying to define something like what we have talked about over the last two weeks, something as large as the glory of God, you want to tread very lightly. You want to tread very lightly on trying to put a definition on the term glory as it relates to God. First off, uh, it's nearly impossible to do so. But also, trying to put a definition, or we run the risk when we do put a definition on something like the glory of God, um, you might fall into the very trap that the Israelites fell into in 1 Samuel chapter 4, right? Where they reduce God down to a, a singular definition, A box, a commodity, a tool used for their glory. Um, Right? Let let me use this example. If I asked you to define in one or maybe two sentences your spouse or your best friend, right? Uh, I I hope many of you are 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 laughing or smirking right now. Uh, You wouldn't even attempt to do so, right? You're like, I'm not even going to try to do that because I know that I I would actually fail. For some of you, I would love to see you attempt to do that and just like, (laughs) it might be an actually fun and enjoyable exercise. But um, how do you really know someone? How how do you really know them? It's not by a mere definition, is it? And, And last week I talked about the Israelites and how they had removed God's personhood, right, by objectifying him as a tool for their glory and for their gain. And, that I, and I said via uh, chapter 4 that God would not be a tool. God would not be someone who you can objectify. And the way that they got there is that they removed his personhood. And so this morning I want to revisit to say, how do you really know someone? How do you really know this God who is a person? It will not be through a definition. You really know someone by how? Spending time with them. Getting to know them. Living life with them. And for us, we have the Word of God. The Word of God is God's narration to us, a story of who He is. And story really is one of the best ways for us to begin to grasp God's glory, something so immense, something so wide. And make no mistake, what the last two chapters in 1 Samuel have been about have been the glory of God. What Vivian just read to us is about the glory of God. So today, my hope and prayer is that we begin to feel, we begin to sense the weight of God's glory before you and I dare attempt to put a definition of it. And maybe by the end of walking through this story from 1 Samuel chapter 5, we'll be better equipped to possibly make a swing at a definition of what the glory of God is. So let's get into the story. How did we get here to 1 Samuel chapter 5? Well, we got here through the Israelites taking for granted the status that they had been given in relationship with God. This is your Old Testament. God chooses from all the nation who his nation is going to be, and that is the nation of Israel, right? This is where God makes a covenant with the people of Israel. I'm your God, and you're my people. And in turn, the Israelites' treatment of God was, as I've already said, like an object that they could manipulate. We see the high priests and his sons, Eli and his sons, treating God casually. Flippantly treating the the, the tabernacle and treating the other people in Israel like they're being served and not them serving God, which was their primary and chief task and goal. That's chapter four. In this week, the scene shifts. Away from God's chosen people, away from the elect, it shifts to the Philistines. A Gentile nation, a pagan nation, who is carrying the Ark of the Covenant back, believing that they had conquered Israel, and most importantly, believing they had conquered Israel's God. So again, if, you, if you've forgotten the scene, Israel came in to battle against the Philistines. Battle number one, what happens? They're defeated. They lose thousands of men in that battle, and then they go, wait a minute, we forgot something, right? Right? We need to go back to Shiloh, get the Ark of the Covenant, and bring it back in. And then we will surely win if we've got the object, right? If we've got the Ark there, we will win. And there's this hollering, there's the shouting. They bring it in. And what happens in battle number two? This is chapter four. They are destroyed even more. They lose even more men. But most importantly, they lose the Ark of God. They lose the Ark of the Covenant. The presence of God is removed from them. And that was what we spent time looking at all of last week. Literally the end of chapter four says this, the glory has departed from Israel. It's gone. It's no more. And if you remember in chapter four, the Philistines who are coming up to battle, they hear the shouting of the Israelites when they're carrying the Ark in. And look at this in verse nine of chapter four. Listen to what the Philistines say, right? Like whoever's in charge of the Philistine army. Here's what he says. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So it's like this pep talk that's given to the Philistines because they understand what's taking place even with the Ark of the Covenant coming in. And so what happens, what what does it appear at, at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 5 about that pep talk? It appears on the surface it worked, right? Why? Chapter 5 tells us that they win the battle and now the Philistines are carrying that ark that they were so afraid of. They're now carrying it back into their camp. So this pep talk worked or did it. Most scholars believe that this scene that we just read is occurring simultaneously with what was happening last week with Eli's death, with Ichabod being born, with Israel lamenting and going, the glory of God is gone. That's what's happening in Shiloh. But what's taking place with the Philistines? We actually know quite a bit about the Philistines historically. We know historically that they were a sophisticated they were an advanced society with advanced weapons of war, some, some so advanced that they were the only ones who had these fashion-type swords, so they were able to be just a force to be reckoned with in terms of warfare. They had their own systems and their own structures. They had all these gods that they, they worshipped. And I, I want to say that because I think oftentimes for the Philistines, we can kind of pigeonhole them when we think about the one Philistine we're most familiar with, which we're going to talk about right, later on here, and, and, and that's Goliath. And so we can just kind of get this idea that the Philistines were just kind of these big dopey people, like, yeah, you know, like, come out and fight me. They were actually really sophisticated, okay? They were really strategic. And so here, this, this Ark of the Covenant is now carried into their camp, and Dagon, In the temple of Dagon, Dagon is one of their gods. Dagon was probably the highest of the Philistine gods. He was a a god associated with vegetation and fertility, all right? Food and children, powerful duo, okay? In Dagon, you might recognize, from Bible study, you might recognize that name. In Judges chapter 16, Samson, in his last feat of strength, he pulls down the temple of Dagon, this, this same god, But here in the scene in 1 Samuel chapter 5, and we're getting into the story now, these victorious Philistines bring Israel's God, the Ark of the Covenant, and put it next to Dagon. And what this means is they were now in possession of Israel's God. And not just in terms of a box, but they were symbolizing that Israel's God is now aligned with Dagon. Israel's God is now working for our God. And something you have to understand about battles um, in particular is that they were not just fought with with hands and with, 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 with weaponry and things like that. It was not just one nation against another. It was one God versus another. It was the God of Dagon against the God of Israel. And on the surface, it appears, and the Philistines are just essentially punctuating this, that Dagon has won and is now is now in charge of the God of Israel, which we know is not true. And we need to understand that the same is true in our lives. And the Bible says this, right? That battles are not just flesh and blood, but they're also spiritual battles against spiritual forces at play and at work. But the Philistines, in their mind, they believed they had a lot to brag in. They had a lot to boast in because even the mighty Egyptians had been unsuccessful in defying the God of the Israelites. They're familiar with the story of the Exodus, that the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Israelites defied the Egyptians. And in fact, historically speaking, the Egyptians were a powerful army who whooped up on the Philistines. And so they're now going, wait, we beat a God that beat them, and now we've beaten, and they've beat us, so we're we're the best. Dagon is the best, and we like to make those jumps in our lives as well. But what did the Philistines find out in this story? Well, let's look at it. In verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod, Ashdod was a city, okay, in their area, rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Wait a minute. Now, Here's an interesting, just kind of note, up until this point, the ark has been called the ark of God. Look at it in your text, the ark of God. When it's being mishandled, it's called the ark of God, the ark of God, the ark of God. Now, the author switches, and you will see this, to call it the ark of the Lord. So when God's power is being displayed, when his glory is being displayed rightly, It's the ark of the Lord, of Yahweh. And this happens not just once, but twice. They find Dagon lying flat on the ground, and the author does this intentionally. In what position? Face down. Now, I cannot overstate the biblical significance of Dagon being face down. Every time the presence of God, the manifest presence and glory of God shows up, doesn't matter who you are, right? Abraham, Moses, right? Shepherds, what happens? You fall face down. It's as if they are worshiping. Why are they face down? Because we cannot bear, we cannot hold the glory and the presence of God. And so the first time he falls, Dagon, look at it. He falls down. And so they show up the next morning. And look at this. They took Dagon and put him back up in his place. So wh- whoever was in that and responsible for the temple, they realized Dagon had fallen over. So they're like, oh, no, we got to prop our God up, which should have been signal and issue number one. If you've got to prop your God up with human hands, right, probably not that powerful of a deity. But anyway, so they prop him up, okay? We do it all the time with our idols. The gospel kicks our idols over, right? Because some of you are laughing like, those foolish, you know, no. You do the same thing, I do the same thing. The gospel kicks over an idol. What do I do? I prop it back up. So they prop it back up. And the glory of God is displayed again a second time. This time, though, in destructive power. It says that Dagon loses his head and his hands fall off. And look at this. This is at the end of verse four. Look at this line. It says, only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Only the trunk of Dagon. So now our Bible is written predominantly in Hebrew and Greek, two original languages, okay? This is in Hebrew. The Hebrew leads, as literally as I can read it, for the end of verse four, and I think it makes way more sense than what our English Bible says. It says, only Dagon remained on him. It doesn't talk about his trunk. It doesn't give like, hey, hey it was just be. It says only Dagon remained on him. Now, why is that interesting, Kyle? So we have no head, no hands, only Dagon. It's a very creative way the author is using to say that Dagon could never think, could never speak, and could never act. So take all of that away in his head, his arms, his hands. And guess what you still have? Dagon. Dagon, he's still there. Now remember, simultaneously in Shiloh, the Israelites are going, where is the glory? The glory is gone. The glory of the Lord has departed. It's been exiled. And where are we simultaneously seeing the power and the glory of God fall? It's showing up very strongly here with and against the Philistines. In verse 6, in verse 11, look at it in your Bible, makes the same statement. It says, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod or the Philistines. Verse 11, the end. The hand of God was very heavy there. Now the word play, don't miss this. If you were with us last week, it should already be going off. The word here, the key word is heavy. The word play that the author is using is the same word that I mentioned being used throughout 1 Samuel. The word for heavy is the same word for glory. God's hand of glory was there upon them and isn't it interesting that what the Lord removes from Dagon is his hands but yet what he has upon them what is upon him here is his hand so who's more powerful the heavy hand of the Lord right The one who knocked Dagon over. You see, hands in the ancient world represented power and action, the ability to do something. And what the God of Israel is saying to Dagon and the Philistines and anybody who would pick up this story is he doesn't stand. Those gods do not stand in my presence. In the head, that's important too. The head was a trophy in Warfare. It's what soldiers would bring back, severing from the body, to show ultimate victory. Do we see ultimate victory between the God of Israel and Dagon? Yes, we do. What's interesting is the Philistines, they were treating Yahweh, the one true God, as a trophy, carrying him back to their camp yeah we got him let's put him in our trophy case under Dagon our God we have won and God goes wait a minute wait a minute you see God allowed the Israelites to carry the ark of the covenant into battle he allowed that to happen and it seemed to have no effect on the battle it seemed on the surface pretty powerless if you were with us in chapter four And the reason that seemed or the reason that looks that way is because God was determined to show the Israelites, his covenant people, that his presence would not be objectified and tied to some object. However, here in chapter 5, that same ark now all of a sudden, all by itself, brings the most crushing defeat to the Philistines. They were turned upside down and God did it without the help of a single soldier or a single sword, the same ark is now breaking out and defeating its enemies all by itself. Now for some of you, I hope gospel bells are going off right there. And the point I want to make, and this is my first point, I only have two, that God will not allow the Philistines to use him any more than he would allow Israel. He's not going to tolerate being used as a commodity by anyone, his covenant people or the non elect. God will act as he chooses. He is not some magic genie, he's not some trophy that you can put in a case. God's supremacy is completely independent of man's effort and participation. Men and women, we are called to participate with God's plan in God's way, but God's advancement isn't dependent on the efforts or support of us. God invites us to participate with him so that we experience his power and glory and delight and joy. But hear me very clearly from this story in 1 Samuel chapter 5. God doesn't need us any more than he needed the Israelites to defeat the Philistines. And that is really, really good news. You've probably heard this example before, but uh, I'll give it. Um, and as a parent, you've experienced it. Um, I have two boys, one that's in here, my oldest is in here, my youngest is not, so I'll talk about my youngest one who is not in here. Um, uh, anytime I go to pick up something heavy, right, which is pretty infrequent, but you know, um, you pick up something heavy, and my boys see me, right, pick up something heavy. Um, my youngest one, he's four, he will come running, right, and what does he do, right, he doesn't even ask, he just is like, All right, you know, like, I'm gonna help you, right, I, I got this with you, and so... What do I do as a, as, as a good father, right? I'm like, get out of the way. I'm going to, no, I, 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 I allow him, right? I allow him to grab the, the, you know, participate. I allow him to grab whatever object it is. And I just allow him to strain and back up and go like, we're doing good, right? And I'm like, yeah, buddy, we're doing good. Now, is there any weight that he's actually carrying? No, and and, and this example breaks down because as they grow, I actually can use their help, right? (laughs) But with God, the perfect father, his children come alongside him to help him carry so that they get the delight and the joy like my boys do when we finish to go, man, we've done a good job, didn't we? Now, all the weight, all the glory rests with God. But how cool is it that our God in his heart invites us to participate with him? But yet goes, no, hey, also, all the weight I'm carrying. Salvation alone belongs to God. Carrying the weight we could not carry, guess who carries that for us? Jesus, that's the gospel bells that should be going off. And so this, 1 Samuel chapter 5, is a picture of that. It's God's glory going forth. And it's going forth so much so that as they begin to pass around, it's kind of a comical scene almost, like in, in, with the Philistines, like they're passing it from one city to another because tumors are happening and all of these results from God's power and glory displaying, they're like, oh, uh, Ekron, let's give it to Gath. Gath, why don't you give it back to Ashdod? <laughs> like, like, they must not like each other, right? Like, why do they keep passing it around? They're just trying to get rid of it, and here's how we treat the glory of God. We try to pass it off all the time. We try to deny it. We try to defy it. We try to go on our own way, but let me tell you this. God alone is sovereign. He alone chooses when to act and when not to, so that he alone receives the glory. God will not allow his glory to be stolen or diminished by Eli and the Israelites or the Philistines and their God, Dagon or by you, or by me. The weight of God's glory will be felt, whether it's in the absence of his presence, which Israel is experiencing, where's the glory, or by his presence weighing heavy, his hand heavy toward the Philistines. The second point, my last one. God will be glorified in all things. He will be all things, things that on the surface in our culture, in our world, seem to be using him, seem to be opposing him, seem to be outright rejecting him, God will be glorified and seen in those things as well. His reputation, his weight, his significance will be felt and seen and nothing can stop it and it will not be avoided. Did you hear that? Nothing can stop the glory of God from going forward. No one can defy it. Uh, This reminded me as I thought about this point um, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. You'll remember this scene, but maybe it'll click even more with this. Um, This is Jesus' disciples shouting this at their Savior, at their teacher. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Right? Ascribing Jesus' weight, giving him all glory. And here we go, verse 39. And some of the Pharisees, right, the religious leaders of the day, the grumblers, religious leaders of the day in the crowd said to him, Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop worshiping you, in other words. Tell them to stop glorifying you. Tell them to stop acknowledging who you are. Tell them to stop calling you that. That's blasphemy. Tell them to stop. And I love Jesus' response. He said, I tell you, if these were silent, if you shut them up, oh, the praise isn't going to stop. He says, the very stones would cry out. He says, so either way, I'm going to be glorified. Either way, I'm going to be worshiped if Israel won't worship God and put him in the right place, then he will have a stone do it. A rock would do it. A carved image out of a stone named Dagon will lie flat before God, praising him. That's a powerful image. God goes either way, with my people or in a pagan nation, my glory and worship will go forth. Nothing can hinder it. Nothing will stop it. Now, I know some of these stories um, can seem distant. We're using phrases and words like the ark of God, the ark of the Lord, a, a people group like the Philistines or the Israelites. But at the heart of these stories from chapter four and chapter five, I think there is a familiar story that plays out to all of us. And that familiar story is this, where it appears on the surface and for a moment that the defiance of God's power and glory is actually possible. It's then when we actually walk through a story like 1 Samuel 5 that we realize, just like Dagon, it won't stand. The defiance to God's glory, the defiance to his power, will not stand. At best, we can just pass it off to the next thing. At best, we can just keep propping up our idols like Dagon. You see, trying to define God's glory, um, like I said at the very beginning, is trying to define the impossible. And don't think that's just me copping out, okay? Um, Even the great, the illustrious John Piper said, and I quote, defining God's glory is impossible, right? So we'll trust John on that. Um, But in true John Piper fashion, he gives an attempt at a definition, And I think he gets pretty close. And here's what he says about God's glory, that God's glory, hear this, is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. The glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. He goes on to say it's the going public of God's holiness. Beauty, goodness, holiness. How do you define beauty? Beauty's not an object, is it? Like if I asked you, what, what, and you would say, "Hey, that's beautiful," I said, "Well, what, what makes that beautiful?" You'd probably go, "Well, it is. It, it, they have, but it." Right? If I said, "Define a water bottle," you all could do that pretty quickly. But with God and His glory, just like beauty, it's something we have to behold. It's something we have to see and experience and feel. We experience the reputation of God, the goodness of God, the beauty of God, the grace of God, the weight, significance. You have to behold it. You have to see it. And here's what I love about our God. Even in its impossibility to define his glory, God gives us a picture. He gives us, as we've been saying all morning long, a person that embodies it. You don't believe me? Hebrews 1 verse 3 says this. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Leave that up there. You want to know what God's glory is? You want to know the significant, the weight, the reputation? God gives us a picture, and that picture, the exact imprint, the radiance, the whole glory of God is revealed in Jesus. And then our Bible gives us four books, four gospels, explaining the story of the glory of God in Jesus. And then after that, gives us letters from Paul and other writers to explain back those very things and those very stories. Because you want to know the glory of God? Here it is. Look at Jesus. He's the radiance, the fullness of who God is. And I would say, even with Christ, you see a familiar story playing out of defiance. That Jesus came in that exact imprint, rejected, denied, and ultimately crucified alongside criminals. And what did it appear? In those moments of him hanging on a cross, it appeared that the world had won, that the religious leaders were right, that he wasn't divine, he wasn't God, he wasn't the Messiah. Can you imagine? Just put yourself in the disciples' shoes for day one after he's put in the tomb. Who appears to be victorious? Day two. You're really now concerned. God, we missed it. How did we miss it? But see, we, we know the rest of the story, right? And what's interesting is, not by coincidence, the same phrase used in First Samuel chapter five about the Philistines, when they would rise early the next morning. That is the same phrase used of the women who on the third day rose early the next morning, not coming to the tomb to see an empty tomb, coming to the tomb with spices and offerings to treat a body. But what they found there was that the defiance of God would not be allowed and his glory would reign supreme. How do we know that? The tomb was empty. So what might be allowed and looked like is being defeated on the surface. Let me tell you, Always gives way to God's glory and God's power and God's plan. The same thing is true for your life individually and our life corporately. And so here's how I want to end in us just sitting in that, sitting in this story of God's weight and glory, that His power is going to go forth. We can't stop His glory. We can't stop his movement. We can't stop how God is going to advance his kingdom. Listen, as believers, what we need to yield is eyes to see how he's calling us to participate with him. And for those of you who haven't trusted in Christ, that this morning God is beckoning you to himself through Christ, to his grace and to his mercy, to receive him. To stop your striving to stop your clinging to religiosity, to stop passing off, to stop propping up that Dagon in your life, right? That thing that you think will provide. And God's like, no, I keep kicking it over for a reason because I love you. Because I want to show you something better. Someone better. I want to show you my glory. And his name is Jesus. And so hosts, will you get ready? Um, We're going to take communion together. And as we take these elements, um, as we receive these elements, let's steward this moment, church. Let's hold these, mo- the, these elements and sit in the, the absolute glory and power of God, in his sufficiency and our insufficiency. Let's let his weight just wash over us. Let, let's let his reputation hit us full steam. Let me pray. Father, Accomplish what we cannot on our own. Holy Spirit, do what I am absolutely insufficient to do in and of myself. Accomplish, let us see, let us taste, let us realize with our minds and with our hearts the glory of God. Let us see his weight and his significance and his reputation. Let us behold his holiness, his absolute otherness, And then also let us yield his voice, the voice of a good father drawing us in, first to salvation and then to participation. Father, let us not squander this moment for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.